Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and continuing our study through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young disciple Timothy, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. This morning we are in chapter 2, and we're going to just look at three verses, verses 8, 9, and 10. This is God's word. Please give it your careful attention. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Most of us will remember a story that we heard when we were children about a vain emperor who loved to parade around his capital city in the finest, most expensive of clothes. And as the story goes, one day two con men came into the city pretending to be weavers who would weave and produce fine clothing. And they publicly promised the emperor that they could make for him, if he would fund their efforts, they would make for him the most exquisite, most beautiful, most glorious clothes ever worn by anyone. And they said not only that, but they're going to make this, these clothes out of a cloth that they'd woven themselves that was magical. Magical in the sense that The only people who could see their beauty and their grandeur were people who were wise and were worthy of their position in life. And therefore, if you couldn't see the clothes, that meant that you were stupid and unworthy of the position that you had in life. Well, so the emperor was very happy to have them make these special clothes for him, the best ever. And so they started to make it, and of course the emperor and his advisors, would, noblemen, would come in to check on their work as they were producing it. These men pretended to be weaving the cloth and pretended to be sewing it into clothes. And of course, when these, the king and the emperor and his advisors, they didn't see anything, but they couldn't admit that. Otherwise, they would be outed as being stupid and unworthy of their position in life. And so the con men continued, pretended to make them, and finally the day came and they said they're finished. And they called the emperor in and they dressed him up in these make-believe clothes. And of course, the emperor went on and on. His nobleman went on and on how beautiful they were. They'd never seen anything like them. Meanwhile, the emperor standing there in his underwear. Of course, the thing that he had to do is then go out and display his fine clothes to the entire city. And so he walks out and parades around the street with a retinue of his nobleman in his underwear, supposedly showing off these beautiful clothes. And the people didn't want to be seen as stupid or unfit for their position in life, so they're praising the clothes and saying how beautiful they are and wonderful. Until a small child, as you know, shouted, but he isn't wearing anything, which emboldened the people to start to say, you know what, I don't see it either. And the buzz around the whole crowd was they didn't see in the clothes. And, but as the story ends, there's no happy ending to that story. The emperor and his noblemen were too proud to admit that they didn't see it, and so they had to carry on with the, the pretense. I thought about this story this week as I was reading this passage, kind of an unusual passage in God's word about 
how people attire themselves, what they wear. And I thought of this story because I couldn't help but think that sometimes when God looks at his people when they gather to worship, like we've gathered here this morning, too often he looks and says, where are the clothes? That our attitude, our actions, our attire are all pretend when it comes to spiritual terms. We come all dressed up in fine physical clothes and we greet one another and smile and say we're all fine and we sing the hymns and we say the prayers and we listen to the sermons. But too often I think the Lord looks at his church and said, but I don't see anything. It's all make-believe. We spend too much of our time, and I think if, if we admitted it, if you were to just think percentage-wise, from the time that you started to get ready this morning, came into the building, sat down, and got ready for worship, that the percentage of time that you spent thinking about how others are perceiving you far outweighs the time that you've thought about God and how he perceives you. And I think that gets to the very heart of what Paul is trying to say in this passage. Is that as we come to worship, we need to as much as possible forget about what other people think of us. We need to lay aside as much as possible our self-consciousness. And also, especially, lay aside our pride and self-glorifying nature. And we need to come in and just say, Lord, what do you want to see when I come into your presence to worship? I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Self-consciousness and self-glorification are the opposite of worship. They are the big enemy of worship. Paul would have us think seriously about how we prepare for worship. And I'm convinced in this busy, technology-driven age that we live in, we do not prepare for worship as we should. I've had mentors in the faith that told me, your preparation for worship should start on Saturday night. That you're not staying out to the latest hour possible distracting yourself with the world's entertainments or whatever it might be that's keeping you up and out of its work or whatever, and then getting not enough sleep and then dragging yourself out of bed. And from the moment you drag yourself out of bed until the time you're sitting here in a chair or a pew, you haven't even had a chance to stop and think about who are you coming to meet with? What are you coming to do? And what is the manner in which you're going to do it? Well, I think that's what I'd like for us as we look at this passage to think about this morning, because I think that gets to the very heart of what Paul is addressing here. How do we worship, how do we prepare ourselves for worship concerned about how God sees us as we enter into his presence? In this section, Paul is continuing to give instructions to Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, the young pastor in the church in Ephesus. He's continuing to give him instructions about how God's people are to worship. This whole chapter centers around that. And the last time we saw that he began that section on Worship, corporate worship, talking about corporate prayer. And he talked about the content of the prayers of the people when we gather together. That when we pray, we should certainly pray for one another and pray for our needs. But our focus, we saw last time, should be on the mission of God. And what is the mission of God? Well, Paul told us last time in the verse seven verses of this chapter that God's mission is to bring the salvation that is available in Christ to all people, all kinds of people, to every part of the earth, to all tribes, all nations, all races. And so we are to have kingdom-focused prayers, and that's what we talked about last time. He, he shifts the focus here. He still begins in verse 8 by talking about prayer, but it's not the focus isn't any longer on the content of the prayers, but the attitude behind the prayers. 
How do we pray when we gather together for worship in the name of Christ? Before I get into this, and we're actually entering into, if you did look ahead a little bit, you looked at verses 11 through 15, you'll notice that we are entering into one of the more controversial passages in the New Testament as it regards to the roles of men and women in, in the church and in the home and all that. Issues of authority in the church, what does it look like? There's some very controversial things here. We're not going to get to the issue of authority yet, although I do think it's in the background of what we're looking at today. But we'll look at that next week, so please come back for part two. But as we look at this first portion, there are some biblical principles of interpretation. I mean, I think there's a misunderstanding that studying the Bible means just picking up and reading it and talking about it, but that's not studying the Bible. You need to be careful. You need to learn over time how to interpret the Bible correctly because I've heard people say sometimes, well, you can teach anything out of the Bible. That's not true. You can distort the scriptures to teach things that the scriptures never intended to teach. But if you understand how to interpret the Bible correctly, and every disciple of Christ should be increasing in your, your, your ability and understanding of how to interpret the Bible, then you're going to be kept from getting into misinterpretations and uh, bad applications of scripture. So I want to just remind you of three basic principles. Most of you have probably heard these before, but they are especially applicable to this passage, which I think is easily misunderstood. First of all, the first principle is scripture interprets scripture. In other words, to understand a passage of scripture, you, it is always helpful to go to other scripture to see what light it brings to that passage. It's God's word. God speaks from beginning to end. And so we can go to other portions of Scripture. Everything we need to know in order to interpret this passage of Scripture correctly can be found in other parts of God's Word. Scripture interprets Scripture. The second principle is that Scripture does not ever contradict itself. Since it's God's Word, it is inerrant. There are no errors as it was originally given. It is infallible. There are no mistakes in Scripture. There are no contradictions. Sometimes we think that there are contradictions, but it's because we haven't interpreted it correctly. We are able to go to other scripture because we know that God never contradicts himself. And so if, we, if it seems to say something in this passage, but it contradicts something else, then we're interpreting one of those, other, either the other passage or this passage, wrongly. Scripture never contradicts itself. Thirdly, scripture was written to a particular people in a particular place at a particular time. And so there are cultural and historical elements to some parts, of, many parts of scripture we need to understand what those are so that we rightly understand what the author, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, was intending to communicate to us. We, in other words, have to be careful not to quickly jump from what we think the, the passage is saying to applying it to our life, in our culture, in our time and place. Because there are some elements that were, that, of what the scriptures teach that were particular for the time in which it was written. So, the way we always teach anybody to interpret scripture is you've got to go back and say, what did the apostle Paul intend to say in this passage of scripture to Timothy and the church in Ephesus? And understand it from their perspective first, and then come make the bridge to our time and our place and our circumstances and our culture to see how those principles apply in our setting. That becomes really important in a passage like this because there are some cultural elements in it but not all of it is cultural. Some of it is eternal principles that God is intending to communicate to us. I want to give you an example of how this works. And an example that I, there's lots of examples, but I think one example that will help 
because it's, it's very similar to what we see in this passage today. The passage today is going to talk about holding up hands in prayer and worship. And it's going to talk about women wearing braids and jewelry and fine clothes. And in order to understand that, you've got to understand what's the principle behind what's being said. Let me give you this example. In John chapter 13, Jesus was meeting with his disciples in the upper room before he went to the cross, and he wanted to teach them about servanthood. And so before he began to teach them, he took on the, 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 the attire of a servant, and he went and he wa literally washed the feet of his disciples. And when he was done washing their feet, this is what he said to them. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. When's the last time you did that for another congregation member? I doubt, unless that congregation member happens to be your four-year-old child, I don't imagine that you've done that recently. We don't literally wash each other's feet. Now, what's interesting is that historically there have been Christians who do that, as some of them even consider it almost like a sacrament in the church. But that wasn't Jesus' intent. And the vast majority of the church has always understood that Jesus didn't really intend for us to go around washing each other's feet. His point was we are to humble ourselves and serve one another. Even at the lowest, most menial of, of, of tasks, we should be willing to serve one another if we love one another in Christ. That's what he was saying. You see what I'm saying? That just because it says something, we don't necessarily take it in a wooden way literally. We understand that there was a meaning behind it. And that's what we're going to see when we talk about raising hands and what we wear in terms of physical attire when we go to worship. Some people look at a passage like this and they ignore the cultural contact and take everything in that wooden, literal way. But there are other people who are just as wrong, matter of fact, more wrong often, where they say, well, because there's cultural elements to this passage, then none of it applies. And I could point you to many commentators that will say nothing in this chapter applies to us today because Paul was addressing a particular issue for those people in that time and that place. That's the way that some churches, some commentators, some scholars, pastors get rid of passages they don't like or that don't fit our own culture. There are both elements here. So that's how we're going to start looking at it. There are things that were particular to the church in Ephesus, but Paul is teaching principles that equally apply to us today. So what is Paul telling us about how we are to worship? And particularly how we are to prepare to come into the presence of a holy God. The first thing he says, and the first thing a message behind the circumstances that he's trying to teach us, is that we need to come to God with repentance. We need to come to God with repentance. I see that in verse 8. He says, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, the first thing, just as a way of interpretation, I want to make sure you pick up on it. He says, in every place, this is what I want to happen. So there's, a, there's an interpretation key. He means this for every place where the church of God gathers, where the gospel of Christ is preached, where people are meeting in the name of Christ. In every place, I want you to take note of what I'm about to say to you. So we do know there's a universal element here. The first thing that jumps out of us is, at us is, why does he single out men? In the beginning, in this verse, he talks about men. In, a couple, in the next verse, he'll talk about women. Why is he singling out men? Well, I, I think there are two possible reasons behind this. One is we know that women prayed in the worship of the early church, that, there, that women praying was a normal activity. We know that from another writing of Paul. Again, Scripture interprets Scripture. We go back to 1 Corinthians 11, and there Paul is dealing with a cultural issue, head coverings. We're not going to go there. I'm not going to tell you what our, the right interpretation of head coverings is in 1 Corinthians 11. 
but just notice that he's dealing with an issue that, that had to deal with the cultural standards of that day. And he's dealing with head coverings, but it's interesting in the, in the midst of talking about how that should or should not be done, he says, every wife who prays with her head uncovered dishonors her head. All I'm pointing out here is the assumption is, is that the wives, the women are praying. He assumed that they'd be praying in the midst of the corporate worship of God's people. And so, we know that, that that's to be expected. Well, why does he single out men? What's possible, and I think a very real possibility, and I'm likely, I would say, is that the men particularly had an issue with this in the church in Ephesus. There is something that was specific to that time and place, that the men were not praying in the right way. I do think there probably is a second element here, which we'll get into next week when we talk about gender and authority in the church, that the early church patterned its worship after the synagogue. And in the synagogue, synagogues were formed by 10 elders and their families forming a synagogue in the Jewish culture in the Old Testament. And so when they worshiped together, there would be preaching of the word, but when prayer was offered, it was offered by the, the men, particularly the, the elders of the church. And so this is one reason I could see why Paul would single out the men, because they, like Richard this morning, would be the ones leading the corporate prayer praying on behalf of the people of God. Um, and so it's likely that the men were in those positions of leadership, but particularly I, we know that the men had a problem. And the problem he'll point out here in a moment is the quarreling and the anger that was going on, the division among the leadership of the church. But I want to focus in again, go to the next phrase, lifting holy hands. Most of us don't pray that way. We're Presbyterians. We don't lift our hands. Most of us have our hands behind our back when we do anything in worship. But he says, lift holy hands. I want you men to be lifting holy hands in worship. So we have to address the question, is that an eternal principle? Is that something that we're being disobedient about if we don't do? Well, the first thing you do, again, go to other scripture. How does scripture interpret scripture? Well, we find in scripture that when praying, either we have examples of prayer or instructions on prayer in scripture, we see a lot of different physical postures, a lot of different body language in prayer. Sometimes they lifted their hands and lifted their eyes to heaven when they prayed. That was a very common way. Sometimes they fell flat on their face with their face to the ground and prayed as they laid prostrate on the, on the ground. Sometimes they kneeled. There are many different postures that we see in scripture. Sometimes the, the head is bowed in prayer. Sometimes the head is lifted up to heaven. All of these, the one thing that's common to all these different postures in prayer is that they all express to one degree or another reverence towards God, the fear of the Lord. They express humility before God, recognizing that it's only by grace that we can address a holy God. They, they express submission to the sovereign will of God. And they express dependence upon God. That's what Holding out your hands like this means, I depend upon you, Lord. I need you absolutely, 110%. And it represents awe before God. All of these bodily postures are attempts to express this kind of a heart attitude before God, and that's really Paul's point. We know that in the early church, that standing with your arms lifted to heaven and your eyes lifted to heaven was the common way to pray in the first century. We don't typically do that, at least in our circles. But that was common. In the Roman catacombs, which were under the streets, the burial places for people under the streets in Rome, 
That's where the Christians, when they were being persecuted, would meet to worship in secret. And they would paint pictures on the wall. And, and one of the common pictures was somebody praying in that, in that fashion. So we do have kind of a, an early testimony to how they prayed. But it was cultural. That's how they expressed reverence and submission and humility and awe in that place. You know, it's interesting. I, when I was studying this and going through all the different bodily postures, we don't have a single example in Scripture of closing your eyes in prayer. And yet, head, heads bowed and eyes closed is the common way in which we posture ourselves for prayer. Uh, all to say that, you know, I think there's a good reason why we close our eyes. I know I try, have trouble being distracted if my eyes are open. So, but the point is, what's your heart attitude? That's what Paul's getting at. He's not talking so much about body language. But I, I, I want to make sure I make the point that even though there's no one correct posture for prayer, and it's somewhat culturally driven and personality driven, I think your posture is important. I mean, when you talk to one another, you, you know, you've seen the scientific studies. What you communicate to another person is only partially your words. It's also your tone of voice. It's your body language. And yet we take those things so lightly when it comes to talking to God. You know, I, I know it's in, a, in a small group or even when I'm praying on my own, in the past I've had a tendency to just kind of slouch in the chair It's because it's comfortable but I've actually been trying and working hard more recently to say, I need to show reverence. I need to show humility. I need to show submission and, and dependence upon the Lord when I pray. And so I may put myself in an uncomfortable position because that's a more reverent, more submissive, more humble way to address my God. And I think it's good. It helps my prayers. It's, it's my body language expressing what I want my heart to, to be. So I do think that posture is important and shouldn't be disregarded. But the point is what's your heart? What's the attitude of your heart, not the position of your body? Notice, as I said a moment ago, that he wants these men to be praying for the congregation with holy hands without anger or quarreling. And that's one of the reasons I had us read earlier in the service, Psalm 24, because in verses 3 and 4 it says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. In the Old Testament, in Old Covenant worship, before Christ came and fulfilled a lot of the shadowy elements of the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices, back then, washing with water was a big part of worship. That there were big basins that you would have to go to and wash before you came into the presence of God to worship. We don't do that. Maybe we should. I don't know. I'm not, not advocating for holy water in the back of the sanctuary. But I'm just saying that there was, there was a good message in that. It was a shadow to point forward to something that is essential to worship, and that is the shed blood of Christ. That none of us, we are all dirty, and in and of ourselves, we do not come into worship without being cleansed in the blood of Christ. And that's really what Paul is talking about. You know, we do preach that any sinner is welcome here, no matter what your sin. You're welcome to come and worship with us, but... That's if you're coming in faith and repentance. If you're coming to be cleansed, then you are welcome in the presence of a holy God because the blood of Christ is readily available to cleanse any sinner from his guilt, from the stain upon his soul. The blood of Christ will make you clean, but you must come in faith and repentance or else you should not be in the presence of a holy God. It is only being cleansed through the work of Christ that we can worship. And so we acknowledge that, that our hands are holy, not because we have achieved great things in holiness, but because Christ has done great things to cleanse us of our sin. 
But he also mentions some sin issues in the lives of the men in that church, the leaders in that church. We know from other parts in 1 Timothy that there was division in the church in Ephesus. Paul addresses it in several other places. That false teachers had come in and brought false teaching and it was causing fights and arguments and quarreling. He references that in several places. And so he's saying, you guys need to deal with this. Not only do you need to, conf- you know, to confess your sin, repent of your sin and confess your sin, but you also need to try to be reconciled, to seek peace before you come and worship. That's the teaching, it's a consistent teaching of scripture. In Psalm 66, verse 18, the psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, if you're offering your gift at the altar, which was an act of worship, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Seek peace and reconciliation and then come to worship. That doesn't necessarily mean that you will get reconciliation because it takes two people to be reconciled. But you should seek it and do all that you can do to be reconciled so that you have confessed that sin and done what you can to repent of that sin before you come to worship. In Mark 11 verse 25, Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. Forgive those who have offended you. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. That's a consistent teaching of Scripture, that if we hold on to sin and divisiveness, it's going to hinder our prayers before God. God wants us to come in faith and repentance with clean and holy hands, having sought reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. That's how to prepare. Obviously, that's not something you're going to do in two minutes before the service starts. That's something you need to be living a lifestyle, something preparing throughout the week, and especially as the Lord's Day comes as the, as the pinnacle and ultimate point of your week, you need to be preparing to come to worship in a repentant way. Secondly, and as we move to the section where he turns to address some of the women in the church in Ephesus, I think he's saying in that passage, we need to come to God with our focus on inner beauty. As, think again, we're thinking about how God looks at us, and we want to be pleasing in his sight. And so as we prepare for worship, we should be trying to seek to beautify our life in every possible way that we might glorify him in worship. In verses 9 and 10, he addresses this problem head on. He says, women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. Now, this was certainly not a unique issue in first century Roman culture in the city of Ephesus, but it certainly was a big problem there, and Paul feels the need to call it out. What was going on is that the the women in that culture and in that even the Christians in that church were in the midst of all the fashion wars of the day. They were competing with one another, seeking to outdo one another with elaborate hairstyles and gaudy jewelry and expensive fine clothing. We know from what we know from historical sources that in Roman culture, how you dressed and how you wore your hair as a woman and what kind of jewelry you had on was a major statement to the world about what your social status was, how wealthy you were, how important you were in the culture. You've probably seen historical pictures of Roman women, especially noble women. It's rather humorous from our cultural standards, but they, they... they thought that for them to have beautiful hair, the thing was to grow it really long and then braid it in many different braids and then pile it up in a big pile on your head 
and then hang a bunch of jewelry on it. That was, that was beautiful in that day. I'm glad that we've gotten away from that, but that was what was considered to be the height of fashion. And I think that's the kind of thing, if you know that about that Roman culture, you can see what Paul's addressing here. He's saying, you're focused on the wrong kind of beauty when you come to worship. And worse than that, you're actually pridefully trying to draw attention to yourself and put down and, and, and you know, make your sisters in Christ look worse. You've fallen into this cultural game. We know it wasn't just in the early church, it wasn't just an issue with women. It's interesting, there's a passage in James that uh, speaks about the problem in relation to the men in, that, that, that James was writing about. In uh, James chapter 2, Listen to what he says there. Again, he's talking about people gathering for worship. And he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So, Clothing and jewelry and finery as a way to exalt yourself was a problem in the culture and it had seeped into the church and it was breaking Paul's heart. He's saying, you're here to glorify God, not yourself. You're focused on the wrong kind of beauty. Let me first, before I get to that particularly, point out something you might easily miss here. Paul is in favor of women beautifying themselves. God's in favor of beauty. God created beauty. And so Paul says women should adorn themselves. Don't miss that. Women should adorn themselves. Accentuating your God-given beauty is a good thing as long as it's done in a humble and reverent way. There's nothing pious about dressing in weird or out of fashion or unflattering ways. There's nothing especially spiritual about that. John Stott said in his commentary, he said, there's no biblical warrant in these verses for women to neglect their appearance, conceal their beauty, or become dowdy and frumpish. <laughs> but we've seen that in some of the more legalistic Christian circles that many of us have operated in or with, that actually dressing in an out-of-fashion Un unattractive or frumpish way is actually can be motivated by pride too, can it? And they'll judge the ones who don't dress that way for being unspiritual. So the issue there is pride. It's avoiding the excesses. You can draw attention to yourself by being frumpish and you can draw attention to yourself by being glamorous. Paul's saying, stop trying to draw attention to yourself, period. Focus on the Lord and try to be pleasing to him in his sight. He says, our efforts to adorn ourselves must be done with modesty and self-control. Modesty, the word modesty there in the original Greek, does have some connotation of sexuality with it. So in other words, he's saying, don't dress in seductive ways. Be conscious of that. You certainly don't want to distract others in the church by the gaudiness or the glamorousness of what you're wearing or how you're dressing but you certainly don't want to be leading weaker brothers into sin by dressing in any kind of seductive way. So it's something to be conscious of. Be modest. And of course, cultural standards set the boundaries of modesty often, and we have to be aware of what those are. The goal of moderation is to be attractive before men, but especially before God, 
but not ostentatious and certainly not seductive, not drawing attention to ourselves. And that's true for men and women. Braids aren't wrong, gold isn't wrong, pearls aren't wrong, expensive robes are not wrong. But when we focus on these things and try to make a statement to others about these things, we are drawing attention to ourselves and not focusing on the beauty that the Lord is looking for in our lives. God loves beauty, but we are so quick to take pride in our looks. And nothing hinders prayer and praise more than pride and self-centeredness. When we come to worship, our focus should be upon inner beauty before God. That's what Paul's saying. He says, women should adorn themselves with what, if you finish the sentence in verse 10, women should adorn themselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Godliness, that is the definition of beauty, to be like God, to reflect his nature, to bear the fruit of the spirit, to exhibit love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's beauty in the sight of God. Peter gives the same instruction to wives in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. This is not something that was unique to Paul. Listen to what Peter says, almost the same words. He says, do not let, this is 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. There's the focus. What's precious in God's sight? It's not your jewelry, it's not your dress, it's not your hairstyle. What's precious is that gentle, quiet, submissive, reverent, humble spirit that looks like God. Godliness, good works, the fruit of the spirit. Think about the woman who's described in Proverbs 31. She's always been held up, the, the wife that's described in Proverbs, always been held up as the epitome of godliness. And in that chapter, there are marvelous descriptions of beautiful good works that characterized her life. It talks about how she rose up early in the morning to provide for her husband and her children, how she worked hard to provide foods and food and clothes for the family, how she carried on a business with integrity and with diligence, and how she would care for the poor and the needy. And what's interesting in that whole chapter, there's not one reference to what she looked like physically. I've often thought when I read all the things she's doing and how many long hours she's working and all the work she's doing, I tend to think of maybe a muscular, maybe a kind of a stocky kind of woman, you know, maybe not fitting our cultural standards of beauty. I don't know what she looked like. The writer of scripture didn't care what she looked like because the real beauty was her character. The real beauty was her good works. And that's what Paul, where Paul wants our focus to be. Matter of fact, that chapter ends, you'll remember this verse, verse 30. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's beauty in the sight of God. Just one more note. Go, go over to chapter 5 in 1 Timothy. Paul there is talking about the widows of the church and how to care for the widows, but listen to how he describes these women in light of what he's just said in the passage we're looking at about what beauty looks like. Listen to this. This is 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning of verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled... In other words, be cared for by the church. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. 
If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, and has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Beautiful widows in the Ephesians church. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll be walking down the street, not here, out, out there in the world. And I'll be walking down the street or I'll be walking in the grocery store and I'll see one of those elderly women, maybe 75, 80 years old, but she's spent decades working against the ravages of age. She is making sure that her hair has been colored so it looks like it did when she was 25. And she's been through a massive amount of plastic surgery so that her skin gets stretched back so she, her skin looks somewhat like it did when she was 25. And she puts on enough makeup and wears stylish enough up-to-date clothes that from a distance she may even look 25 for a little bit. And then you get closer and you're like, wow, she's really like 80 years old. And, 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 you, have, and you have this tendency, don't you? I hate to say this, but it's kind of sadly, it's kind of pathetic. And you say, give it up. You're never going to be 25 again. You're trying really hard to gain something that you're never going to have again. But the problem is you're seeking for a beauty that is meaningless in the sight of the Lord. People may value it. And one of the beautiful things about, I mean, you think about the widows in Ephesus. They were 60 years and, old, 60 years and older, but they were beautiful in the sight of God. Some of the most beautiful women I know are elderly. Because God has been working on their beauty for decades. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, listen to what Paul says there. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Our outer self, that beauty is dissipating for some of us very, very quickly. But if you know the Lord, if he is your salvation, if he is working in you, and he is making you more beautiful day by day, so when we come to worship, there's where Paul wants our focus to be. What is the attitude of our heart? Is our, are our words, our expressions, and our body expressing humility and reverence and awe and dependence upon the Lord? However that expresses itself in your setting. And are we preparing ourselves by seeking the beauty that is godliness? So that when we come to the Lord, he is pleased with his work in us. I can't close without reminding you that if you do come to worship by faith in Christ and willing to repent of your sins, what the scriptures promise is that you are robed in the righteousness of Christ. In other words, you are made clean of all your, gifts, your sin and guilt, and you are given the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at you, when you come in faith and repentance, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You are perfect. You are gloriously beautiful because by faith you are owning the righteousness of Christ. That's why he accepts you into his presence. But the good news doesn't stop there. Is that even though he sees you as beautiful as you are in Christ, every day he's making you more beautiful in your real heart, your real life, every day, day in and day out. You are becoming like Christ by his grace. If that's your focus, you're ready to worship. Let me close with the words of James 4. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, we get so caught up in the perspective of the world around us. We strive 
for the same goals and the same kind of acceptance and the same kind of praise and adulation that the world is seeking. And even when we come into church, we forget who we are. We forget what Christ has done for us. We forget this glorious standing that you've given us by faith to be accepted in Christ, to be seen as righteous. Lord, I pray that we would, as has been said earlier in the service, work harder at preparing to worship. That we would be more diligent and more faithful in seeking to focus upon the right things as we come to worship you and expressing them in the right way. Father, we thank you for your patience with us. You see all the ugliness that still remains in us, and yet you loved us, you sent your son to die for us, and you are remaking us into his image. Thank you for that good work. In Christ's name we pray, amen.